Hebrews chapter 2. What was that? <laughs> Ron, uh, no, I got to repeat it because it's good. His dad jokes are amazing. I'm a dad joke guy. Um, they annoy my wife to no end, but he said that this is, this is proof that there's coffee in heaven because there's a Bible book called Hebrews. Thank you, Ron. Set the tone for the sermon. Awesome. So, no, I, going through last week, um, and I, I, you know, I had expressed, and I, I want to kind of just revamp in regards to context, because once again, as I try to emphasize to you guys when you're reading through Scripture, that you have to hold firm to context to have a proper understanding of what's being said in the Scriptures as well, and what's being said in the Bible. So, um, we spoke about last week about the overarching theme with Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we were to leave with any, any kind of context to that, that is what the book of Hebrews is expressing. That is what the book of Hebrews is talking about. We spoke about um, the time frame in which the book was written. We, we gave a little bit of exposition on that. We also spoke about the audience, and I gave you guys three different, um, three different opinions or options in, in regards to who this book was written to. I also gave you guys my belief in regards to... Uh, who it was written to, and I, I felt like it was more of a book of encouragement to those people that maybe were dealing with a great sense of persecution to continue to contend for the faith, to continue to hold firm to the faith as well with a reminder of, Christ, who, of who Christ is, and that was something that even, once again, serves true for us today, especially in the wild and crazy times that we live in. I mean, it doesn't matter what goes on in the government. It doesn't matter what goes on in the world. We have to remember that our king is still sitting on the throne. Amen. So that is something that holds us to a place of peace and a, and a, a place of hope, especially when everything around us seems to be um, falling apart. Um, and then in regards to the authorship of the book of Hebrews, there's a popular opinion that Paul was the author of this. I do not believe that to be the case. And Chapter 2 is actually going to give a little bit of insight on um, why that is and a little bit of defense on my opinion, but it's not just my opinion. I think it's the opinion of many others as well. But in actuality, um, there really is no knowledge of who the author of the book of Hebrews is. And I stand up here to tell you that doesn't really matter, right? It's, it's a, a book of truth. It's a book for our edification, our learning, and our understanding. But Chapter 2 is going to be this beautiful meshing of Christ as our brother, right? And this understanding of, of what that means and what that signifies. Um, it's going to really express his humanity as well, the essence and the full nature of his humanity. Um, it's going to, to use some some literature and some writing that you guys are going to be able to look in your Bibles, especially your particular translations, and we're going to kind of unpack that together to see if you can catch kind of those little subtle nuances and those little subtle glimpses or nuggets in regards to what the author is trying to convey in regards to the humanity of Christ as well, okay? So I just, once again, as I said last week, there's a lot in this book and for the sake of your guys' time and your life, I would love to keep you here for two or three hours a Sunday and preach to you. My wife would not allow that. She's shaking her head no. Um, so trying to literally get all of this information to package it up 
to present it to you guys in a way that's just edifying and encouraging for you guys to leave here encouraged, for you guys to leave here um, more knowledgeable, but also for you guys to leave here with just this zeal and this want to get into the scriptures, to get into the Bible, test the things that I'm saying as well. Once again, not to leave here, and I'm not saying that from a haughty position to go, yeah, test me because I'm right and you'll find out that I'm right. I'm not saying that, but test just to affirm the things that I'm speaking and saying to you guys. Amen? So we're going to go ahead. We're going to start unpacking this. Book of Hebrews, chapter 2. I made sure that I put some notes down for this. Brandon made a joke that he might steal my sermon notes. You can borrow them whenever you want, though. So chapter 2, starting off at verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, this is something that is emphasizing, and once again, when we read this language and we have to kind of go back to the Greek and all that stuff, I don't want to get too nerdy or too heady with you guys, but many times the, the connotation and the expression of what's being spoken about through these words are many times missed or undermined because we're using it in English language. You know what I mean? Like, we expound on what we say by adding like exclamation points and things like that. And we've talked about in, in the Bible when they want to emphasize something like God's holiness, what is it that they do? They repeat it three times. So holding firm to that, we, we, I want to try to do my best to really express and to, to show what the author is trying to say. This word or this phrase, we must pay much attention, actually in the Greek is making reference on two different things. It's making reference to a ship, okay? a ship that is being loosely anchored in harbor and then is being drifted out to sea. So if you're a person that has a boat or a ship, you want to make sure that that ship is anchored properly, that it's moored to the dock. What the author is saying is paying close attention. You want to make sure that you're grounded and rooted so you don't drift away. But there's another side to it that's being spoken about as well, about going past the harbor because of neglect or lack of knowledge or information or disobedience to where you pass by the harbor. So this isn't even a reference being made to of listening to the message, listening to the gospel, holding firm to what's being spoken about and said and not drifting away from the truth because you're going to read too in regards to this about the neglect of the gospel, the neglect of such a great message, what can happen and the ramifications for that as well. Okay, so I just wanted to, to emphasize that out of the gate in verse 1. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape, here's this language, if we ignore so great a salvation? Now the author is making reference to the law being delivered to Moses through the angels. You guys can read this, and I believe it's, I have Galatians 319 if you want to read on that, but also the imagery of what that had to look like is being spoken about in Deuteronomy 33.2. And you guys can write these passages down. I give you these passages because I want you to go home and to read them, once again, to test the things that I'm saying, to even promote conversation. We know that the message being brought to Moses, the law, was important. It was very significant, right? And there were rules and things that had to be followed, and there were ramifications and circumstances for those that didn't follow those rules, right? Here's the deal, though. There were tons of rules, tons of laws, tons of prohibitions, but there was not a lot of punishment. 
And what do I mean by that? There wasn't a lot of options of punishment. What was the main option of punishment that usually took place in disobedience to the law? Death. I mean, you really can't cut it many ways, right? So the laws delivered to Moses, people had to be obedient to the law. And this word disobedient, too, this is something else that I want to make sure that I impact to you guys, because a lot of people will read God's word, especially the scriptures, and they think, man, what if a person just accidentally violated the law? That person usually was not held to that standard of punishment. This word disobedience in the Greek is making reference to someone that willfully steps over the line, that can continuously and neglectfully steps over the line. Disobedience. They know the law. They know the rules. They don't care. They violate it. And once again, 633 laws and prohibitions, not a lot of different forms of punishment. A primary punishment that was handed down was death. Serious stuff. Can we all agree to that? So then the author goes on, though, to say, if that was serious, and the, this message came from angels, right? God sent these ministers down with the law to give to Moses. How great is it even more that the Son of God himself bringing this message, this gospel truth, what do you think would take place or happen to the person that neglects that message? You see the weight that's being spoken about? So the supremacy of Christ is being spoken about even over the angels. Angels bring the message to Moses on Mount Sinai. But the Son of God himself comes down with this message, this gospel message that will lead to salvation. So how great of a punishment that would be faced if someone was to neglect such a message? That is what the author is trying to convey. So once again, in verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? That is a rhetorical question. Guess what? You can't escape. There is no escape if you were to ignore such a message. We all know that there will be a time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We spoke about it a couple weeks ago, right? You don't have an option on professing Jesus is Lord and Savior, but you do have an option on when you do. Because everyone in creation will be down on their knees saying that Jesus is Lord. God also testified to it by signs. Oh, wait, let me back up. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now, this is a message, once again, or a phrase that kind of unpacks and shows possibly Paul not being the author of this message. Okay? So we know that the Lord went out and brought this message to the apostles. The apostles then go out and speak this message to other people. This author is making reference to being one of those individuals that possibly heard the message from the apostles. We know that Paul speaks about, I believe it's in Galatians 1, that he heard the message directly from Jesus, right? Jesus taught him these things. You guys can go to Galatians 1 and read on that. So we know in reading and, and listening to this that this was not something that the author directly heard from Christ, which to me would remove Paul from being a possible author of the book of Hebrews. Okay? Just like to throw that in there. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I love this passage and I love some of the commentaries that I've read on it because it really does speak about this, about this intensification that was 
present with the gifts and signs and wonders of this time. And this is something that I think is important for us to unpack and to realize as well. There were individuals that Christ sent out. You guys can read about it. I have it written down here for you guys in Mark chapter 16, verse 18. Actually, if you guys want to, we can go there together as a church and read this. Mark 16, verse 18. It's a passage that many of us have heard in the church. I'll start off here at verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Now I'm going to stand up here as your pastor and say that we believe in this church that all the gifts are still for today. I don't doubt that one bit. I am not a cessationist. My wife is not. We don't preach and teach that belief here. However, I do find and believe when we read scriptures as such that there was this sense of intensification with those individuals that Christ called and sent out, right? We know that there are people in the, in the church today that maybe believe that, and once again, Christ could do this if he wanted, but this is where a confusion can come about. What was that, Julian? God can do whatever he wants. But there's a confusion sometimes when we read these scriptures of what may be deemed as normative and narrative in the passages. And we might read something that may be more of a narrative and think that it attests and affirms for everything and everyone going on today. Does that mean that Jelaine can go out and go drink poison and God will protect her? I believe that God can protect Jelaine. Of course he can. Why wouldn't you do it? Just in case he decides not to. So what I just want to make sure is that when you put your eyes on passages like that, I don't want you to think that that means because the Bible says it here that Brent and Rick and all that can go out and they can drink poison from snakes and they'll live. Or, this is the other thing, that God is going to heal someone that you pray for every time because you believe in Jesus Christ. I want to make sure that I express that. And in expressing that to people, some people may stop and think I'm being crusty. You don't have enough faith. You don't believe. No, I want you to understand what the scriptures are properly saying. Because many people in here, if not everyone, can attest and believe that you've prayed for someone to be healed. Right? And many of you, if not all of you, can sit there and say that healing didn't take place. Amen? This is just a proper understanding of the scriptures and what's being said. Okay? So what the author is saying here in Hebrews 2... Those signs and wonders and miracles that were given by Christ to these apostles. Here's the other thing that I really appreciated in some of these commentaries that I love. It was even for the apostles' faith, their sake of faith and belief. It was to validate the message that Jesus was teaching to them through what they were seeing. Then they take that message as a validation to the message received from Christ to then bring out to the world, right? That was the purpose of these signs, miracles, and wonders. It still is the purpose of it today, if you will. And even speaking about the gifts, you guys can go to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We as a church, we believe in the proper biblical use of all the gifts, 
not just some, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, those three chapters. We did our, our 1 Corinthians series. We stayed in those three chapters for quite a bit. Those chapters are very edifying and encouraging to a lot of people. Because once again, it wasn't that we were dogging out and saying that the gifts weren't for today. But Paul addresses these issues to the church of Corinth because guess what? They were issues even back then. There was a misuse and abuse of gifts taking place. And Paul wants to just lay it out there on the line. Listen, you say you speak in tongues, I speak in more tongues. But, and he goes through and he wants to lay out the foundation of it. Your gift using needs to be Christ-centered, sacrificial, and edifying to the church. You use those gifts in those three ways, then an outsider comes in that doesn't believe, especially those who prophesy, and they see that we're loving each other properly, we're using gifts properly. What a form of evangelism to an unbelieving heart. My wife and I believe that the gifts need to be used, especially in this church. They should be. You guys should desire gifts from the Lord. Pray and ask him for what gifts he wants to give to you in accordance to his will. But once again, the author is sitting here saying, God also testified to it, the message, by signs, wonders, and various miracles, by, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. People would see these things in accordance to the message that was being brought. It was like a stamp of approval on the message, right? So I just want to make sure that that's understood as well. Going on here into verse 5, and guys, the language here that's going to be used, and I, once again, I want you guys to check your own Bibles, your own translations, because it's pretty neat here what the author is doing in regards to his use of some words. And the NIV does some stuff differently which I'm going to not pick on, but I am going to make sure that I kind of throw it out there. But I see what the NIV is trying to do. In verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. So this word subjected, some of your guys' Bibles say authority. It's not to angels that God is going to give or put in a place of authority to the world to come. Okay, We know that there is a new world that is to come. God is not giving that world to the angels. He's going to let us know who's going to get that world and how that world is given to those individuals or those people. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. This is a, a, a classic Hebrew way of saying that it doesn't matter who said it, like who the person was used to speak it. It just matters on the source of those words. So if Jelaine or Rick or Brandon or Nikki, if any of them was to be the mouthpiece of God's word, it would not be uncommon for a rabbi to sit there and just say, well, someone said, because they don't want to give Jelaine, Rick or Brandon or Nikki any kind of like undue attribution. What they want you to focus on is the message. Do you even see why this is kind of fitting into the book of Hebrews? We don't even know who the author is, but does it matter at the end, church? It doesn't. All that matters is the message that's being spoken about. Because I guarantee the author knows who he's quoting when he says this. He knows it's a psalm. 
He knows who wrote it. He's, he's knowledgeable in that, I guarantee it. But he's putting out there and saying, but there's a place where someone has testified, knowing fully who it is and where it's coming from. But just listen to the message. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? How many of your Bibles say him? How many of your Bibles has the H lowercase? Good. What the author is speaking about here is humans. Some people have read this and they think that speaking about Christ in this particular part, and I'm going to unpack that moving forward, okay? But right now, who's being spoken about is humans. And the NIV knows that. And for the sake of confusion, they put them as a race. But him, lowercase h, is being spoken about of man, okay? Not Christ, but man, the race of man. A son of man that you care for him. Son of man was another phrase or word or, or, or um, title that was used to describe even humanity. You made them or him, as some of your translations say, lower than the angels. You crowned him or them with glory and honor and put everything under his or their feet. Now, here's the beauty of what's being spoken about. We read this and we see this kind of play that the author's speaking about. Speaking about humans. But there's a little bit of a, a discretion here. When you read about humanity in Genesis 1, Jelaine, you said, Brendan, and then we're going through this. We know the initial point of creation, guess what? We were the head of creation. God established us as his creation to be over everything, right? And even Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was a sense of symbolism of his headship over creation. But we know the fall of Genesis, this stuff got muddied up in that process. That the intention that God the Creator had for his creation in mankind did not come to fulfillment through the fall in Genesis 3. But listen to how this has morphed into Jesus Christ, because this is, this is important for us to catch when we read this. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them or him or people. But he goes on to say here, but we do see Jesus. Some of your translations say, but namely Jesus. So now what we're starting to see is the intention that God had for his creation of man to having everything subjected under their feet through the fall, that order was disturbed, right? We even read about, I think it's in the book of Daniel, about angels having a sense of authority over creation, okay? Angels are higher than man right now. We know that when Jesus comes back, the church will even judge angels. But right now, the hierarchy of creation has been disturbed through the fall. So now, wait a minute, when we see Jesus come onto the scene and we see him come down and be born in the human flesh, this is where humanity of Christ is being expressed. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, 
Now listen to the play on words here because now he's connecting what's going to be said to the psalm that was just read. Who was made lower than the angels for a little while, speaking of his humanity, now crowned with glory and honor because how many of your Bibles have he in the lowercase? How many of you, when you read about Christ in the New Testament, when they speak, and you see Nikki smiling, when you read about he, is it uppercase? I'll raise my hand first then. Do you see what the author's doing? He's writing about the full human nature of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, by using that little h. He's connecting Christ to what the psalmist says in Psalm 8, what we just read, about our intentional place with creation, but through the fall, that place was disturbed. Christ coming, taking on full humanity to the point now where even when we read about him in the New Testament, in this particular book, the author is even going to attribute he in the lowercase. Because if I write about he, any of you, I'm going to write it in the lowercase. Now I start to see that imagery of brotherhood coming together. I'm not neglecting or debating his full divine nature, but you guys got to get this when it comes to the full human nature. And this was the heresy of the time. We spoke about it a couple weeks ago. Jesus was fully God, but he couldn't have been human. He couldn't have been. And we said how that's kind of flip-flop today, right? I believe Jesus to be a good dude that lived a long time ago, but there's no way he could be God. And this is the, the, the ruffle, the rub that takes place with a lot of religions. You're telling me that the one that holds everything into place, where all things were made through him, by him, and for him, all of that, that God, was a human like me? You truly believe that? Guys, that's the message that we proclaim is the gospel. It sounds foolish to the world. But you got to be able to connect the dots. He had to take on that humanness, that human nature, to be able to beat sin. Right? And we're going to unpack that a little bit more as we go on. But I want to make sure that you guys are making the connection here of what the author is saying. I see people shaking their heads, yes, but do you pick up what I'm putting down with this? I see smiles and like, oh, eh. But I don't want you to come to me afterward. Well, I do if you don't get it. I'm not saying don't do it, but you know, I'm smiling and nodding my head. But Josh, I had no idea what you were talking about. So he's making that connection in verse 9 to what was spoken about. What was intended for human is now being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Once again, verse 9, but we do see Jesus, or in some of your translations, but namely Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I ask you guys to even go to, and you can write this down, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, that word crowned is making reference to the ascension the ascension of Christ back up to God the Father, right? He, was, he suffered, he, was, he died, he resurrected, and he ascended. That word crowned, it's like it's complete, it's done. So Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 really speaks and emphasizes that, okay? 
He goes on here in verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists. So this is that Colossians 1 verses 1 through 16, I believe, okay, made by him, through him, and for him should make the pioneer of their salvation or the author, as some of your um, translations say, or the source of your salvation, of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Guys, this theology, we talked about it a little bit, I believe, at men's group, and we talked about it, um, we've talked about it in this church a while, and I really want you guys to pay attention to this. Last night, even at our, um, at our uh, Men of Integrity dinner, one of the things that David Akers spoke about was the, the original definition of the word passion. Passion of Christ. And, and the definition of that was, for you men paying attention, what? Suffering. Suffering, right? And I stand up here, and I don't say that to sound all manly and woeful, like, yeah, like Carmen and Nikki, we're supposed to suffer for Christ. And, you know, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when we read language like this, we all should be locked in to this sense of understanding of one another. Christ was tempted like you've been tempted. Christ suffered like you have suffered. No one in this room as a Christian can say Jesus doesn't understand. Jesus doesn't get what it is that I'm going through. There's this beautiful meme out there of Jesus during the Passion of the Christ filming. He's sitting on a, a, a chair and he's all bloodied up and the director's talking to him, I guess, about like the next scene that's supposed to come up. But the meme says, me trying to tell Jesus about my problems. Like I sit there and I think about that. I know when I read this, that Christ didn't come to earth to live a joyful, perfect, happy, healthy, and whole life for my salvation. He came and had to suffer. Why? Because I am infused with flesh that has a sin nature to it, and from that sin nature, guess what comes from it? Suffering, pain, anguish. Jesus himself at the Garden of Gethsemane is in anguish to the point where he's sweating what? Anyone in here that's ever been anguished like that, I want to know. You can't say in the midst of your darkest times, your hardest moments, your deepest despair, that your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. That's a lie. We even talked about Wednesday night for the folks that were here. One of the things that I think is imperative, and I want to repeat it as well, that we can even attest and say as Christians, we may be even more in tune to that suffering now with the acknowledgement of the sin in our life. Right? To the point where we beat ourselves up as Christians in thinking that we're not living up to the standards that God would want us to live up to. And here's the beauty of the message that was spoken about on Wednesday. If you have that conflict in you, if you have the war of the spirit and the flesh in you, rejoice. Because it's evidence that you have the promise of Christ in your heart. When you're living as a sinner blind to the passions of the world, you don't care about the things that you're doing. 
you just move on to the next thing to find fulfillment. But if you're sitting in this room today and through your suffering, your acknowledgement of the sin in your life, that you realize that you're living in a way that is in objection to God, that's in disobedience to God, don't live by the standards and the inner voice in your head to sit there and think that God can't love me to get through this. He doesn't love me anymore because I've lived in such a way. That's not the gospel, church. You have to stop and sit back and rejoice in the fact that I feel that conflict and I know that that war is going on inside of me. I have to lift my hands and praise him now because I feel that and I know in that is the open door of his grace for me to go to him and say, Lord, forgive me because I've sinned against you. And here's the beauty of it. Remove your voice and your emotions. Go to what the word says, which we spoke about at men's group. 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful in cleansing all those people who come to him. He's faithful in forgiving all those who come to him and ask for forgiveness. Hebrews 4.16, we have the right to go to a holy God through Jesus Christ and be in his presence. When we pray, when we repent, when we ask for forgiveness, we only come to those places through our suffering. And that's not a proper theology. And I want to ask you guys this before I go on to the next verse. Like I said, there's a lot in this and I could keep going. How many of you would argue with me that the primary grounds for your Christ-likeness to show is in the time of suffering and affliction? Or do you think you show Christ the most or have the opportunity to show Christ the most when everything's going good, great, and dandy? No. Can I pick on us a little bit in regards to last night, what happened with Scott and Jess? Yeah, we might as well. So Scott and Jess, I'm going to put you guys out there because you guys, I told my wife when we came home, I'm like, this couple showed us some grace, okay? And they're going to smile and laugh. They're like, what's going on? What is he talking about? <laughs> the plan last night. Plans are great, right? Man, women, oh, made the women made the plans. I'm not. I didn't say that. So Scott, the plan was, was Scott and Jess were going to come to my place, Jelaine and I's place, with the kids. And Scott and Wyatt and, and my dad were going to ride over to uh, Men of Integrity dinner. Okay? Now, the plan, lowercase p, the plan was that they would be there at 4.45 so I could get to the hall area about 5 o'clock to disperse tickets to the men because I was the keeper of the tickets, okay? So 4.45 is rolling around. Wyatt's ready. I'm about to go get my dad. Scott and Jess aren't there, right? So I text Scott and I said, hey, when you guys get there, just pull in the driveway because we pulled out in the street, okay? Scott's text back. We haven't left yet. My response to that is pretty just like, oh, like they, they so Jelaine's like, well, well, Jelaine's like, I'll watch, but Jelaine's like, you might want to make sure though that you text them to let them know, like just to have you meet there and you need to go get my dad. So Jelaine's getting kind of just, not because of you guys not leaving, but she just wants to make sure that I do my part in going to get her dad, right? So I go and I go pick up her dad and all that stuff and Scott ends up, I'm still thinking maybe Scott's going to come and I got to, Scott comes walking in. I'm thinking maybe Jess dropped him off or something like that. Whatever. Simple stuff. Scott sits down and all that and um, I text Elaine. I'm like, something like, how's Jess and the kids doing? And she's like, she's not here yet. So I'm kind of sitting there thinking like, I'm just confused. I'm like, what's going on? Da, da, da. So Scott looks at me 
And he says these words, and I'm not throwing him under the bus. I just want Jess to know you got a good dude in how he did this. Scott was, you can never say 100% sure. He was 99.99% sure of when the actual event took place. But he was listening to what you were saying, and for the sake of peace, you know what he did? He just listened to her. Like, I know that the text said 445, right? And I'm just going to sit back and my wife is saying, nope, it's this time, da-da-da. So that's grace number one, right? I'm like, good dude, like, I get that. Like, sometimes for the sake of peace, you just keep your mouth shut, right? Just go, okay, you're right. Jelaine then sends me a text and she goes, it's my fault. I sent Jess a text saying to be here at 545, thinking it was, thinking it was 6 o'clock. Jess shows grace by walking in the house. Now, most people would grab their phone and go, look, your text message said this. Jess, you showed my wife grace by not doing that. You walked in and in a sense even owned it like it was probably you. That touched my wife's heart in a way that touched mine, where I'm just like, oh, that was great. That was awesome. So with that being like said, I don't know, that was just something for us last night that was, I don't know, it, it, it all worked out. It was great. It was, it was an awesome thing for us to experience and, and grace and all that stuff with, um, with yeah, we expressed that. We showed that. So anyways, though, back to the point of that, in those moments when you guys are struggling or having something hard take place in your life, that is the primary ground for your Christ-likeness to show the most. Anyone can be kind to people when kindness is taking place all around them. Anyone can be kind to someone that's kind to them. Jesus could have died for perfect people. He didn't. Jesus died for sinners like you and I. The hero died for the villain, right? It's this backward narrative of a superhero movie. So when you find yourself in those moments of suffering, as, as Paul says, it's in those times of my weakness that I know your grace is sufficient. It's in those times where I feel at my weakest that I'm truly at my strongest because I know your strength is fully upon me. And as Christians, when we read this language, we understand and know that Christ himself purposely and obediently put himself in those situations on our behalf. <coughs> Amen? And we're called now to live that out. We are called to be sanctified by him in that expression of who he is. His light is only shown the brightest in the midst of dark times. His love is only shown the greatest in the midst of conflict. And our lives in a fallen world that we live in attest that we have plenty of opportunity to show Jesus Christ these days. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. Good job, babe. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to say, I'm going to start off here, verse 10 again, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and, all, for whom and through whom everything exists, once again, Colossians 1 through 16, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Some of your guys' Bibles say, for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source, all have one God, all of that. 
This is what binding us together with Christ through his participation in the flesh, being made fully human. We now have the opportunity to participate with him because of who we are as humans, but also because of through who he is as God, right? We can't approach a holy God unless through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. Some translations as the NIV says sisters. For he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Now, I believe in verse 12 here, that is Psalm, I believe, 22, 22. And then in verse 13, he is reciting Psalm 18, 2 and also Isaiah 8, 17. So if you guys want to write that down, you can. Verse 12 is Psalm 22, 22. Verse 13 is Psalm 18, 2 and Isaiah 8, 17. Now, in closing out here, chapter 2, there's this beautiful imagery that you guys can go to, and I, can, I, I challenge you guys to read this throughout your week, and it's John chapter 17. It is deemed and seen as the priestly prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ to God the Father on our behalf. Okay? And what he's basically sitting here saying is... The author is saying that Jesus is not only the priest, but he's also the offering. And this is what we talked about in chapter 1, that all of the things of the Mosaic Law have been brought to fulfillment through the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no more need for sacrificial systems. There's no more need for the office of priest. There's no more need for the office of king. There's no more need for the office of prophet. Jesus has fulfilled these offices. So in verses 14 through 18, we're going to go through and read this. John 17 is kind of a, it's a, it's a great correlation, maybe gives you a little bit more of an in-depth look of how this looks. We're going to start off here, verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, some of your translations say blood and flesh, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Do you guys understand what the power of death is? We know, and people hear this, they're kind of like, what, is, what does that really mean? Because I know like, there's going to be a day I die, right? My tombstone's going to have a day I was born, and there's going to be a dash and a day that I died. What does that mean? Well, David spoke about it last night at the Men of Integrity, that the end for us, our hope and our glory, is eternity with Jesus Christ. So that means that I don't have to fear death as a Christian. So what is the power of death? Power of death is the fear of it. The world fears it. We see it all day, right? The way that lives are ran, the things that are being involved in, different you know, techniques and, and surgeries and all this stuff. But even the mindset that we have as people is, is, is creation. Everything we do is in essence trying to avoid the inevitable. And what is that? Death. Again, as I say, I sit at funerals. It is a captive audience because you look at people and you look at their face and when they have a loved one up front lying in a coffin or an urn filled with ashes, 
we can debate about a lot of things. I can debate about a lot of things as a Christian to you, but at the end of the day, you know, one thing that I'll always get you on is I can just turn around and point at that coffin and that urn and go, it's coming for you one day, as it's coming for me. But what's the difference? I don't have to fear it, because I know where my hope and my glory lie, and that's in eternity with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's this great way to open up conversation with people. But Jesus came and died to remove the power of death. The, the guilt that flows down from sacrificial systems that were always going on and taking place, right? You go in, you bring an animal there, you have all this sin, but you still feel a sense of guilt from it. Only to come back the next year and do it all over again. Jesus removes that. Oh, you feel guilt? because of the sin that you have, rejoice in that. Because of me and who I am and what I've done, I will forgive you of that. And your heart will continue to be made new to where you'll be continued to be made in the image of me to where you will look at that sin in your life and you'll turn away from it. But when you slip, and if you slip again, you know that you can always come to me. Right? This is the message that the, the author is really trying to convey here. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by, here it is, the fear of death. The world we live in, guys, lives under the power of death because of their fear of it. We know this is not our home, right? This is not the end for us as a Christian. It is a blip in the grand scheme of eternity. What a hope. What a glory. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And that's what chapter 3 is going to start to work into, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that, and once again, look, the word he, lowercase h, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Propitiation, once again, beautiful word, the fulfillment of, of the law, the fulfillment of the requirements to a, a wrathful God. That's what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. Closing out here in verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. Once again, you guys can't say that Jesus Christ doesn't understand or know what it is that I'm going through. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted as well. He died for you and I. He died for you and I to have relationship with Him. I have a song that I'm going to play in closing here. It's a 